You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Anthony Gardner. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. One of the things that I love about being a lover of art and lover of exhibitions and seeing artworks, because that's first and foremost what keeps me going, why I do the job that I do is because of a love for, for the material and sharing that and learning from people with very different experiences, very different ways of interpreting or sensing an artwork becomes such an expansive, explosive way of thinking about different ways of reading or different ways of thinking about what it is that other people are uh, exploring. I love seeing with children for that reason. It reminds me actually in many ways what it was that got me wanting to see art, which was again, that, that sense of curiosity of molding a sense of myself and developing a confidence of thinking with somebody else, not just generationally, but across swathes of time and cultural difference. Somebody who could have been uh, dead for 500 years, you can still have that engagement with their thoughts, their desire, their ambitions through an artwork. Similarly, if you're looking at a work that's just been made, is thinking about where your interpretation meets the ambitions and aims of somebody else, the intentions of somebody else, and how those two meet, sometimes clash, often gel, create new sparks, new interpretations. And that possibility for creative thinking, you know, it's so rare at the moment. It's often muddled out of us as we age, as we are expected to take on different kinds of responsibilities that we're meant to secure ourselves in our lives. But actually, sometimes the most interesting thing is when you break out of that set of templates. And that is precisely where sharing those interpretations from very different kinds of experiences, seeing things, explaining things, sharing things that you are seeing in a work or feeling in a work that no one else might have had that same kind of experience or that same thought. And so that process of sharing something new, sharing something that is a complete spark and a catalyst for excitement, to have that, especially again at the moment when we are locked in our rooms, when we're locked in our spaces or concerned about the future, to have that creative possibility is such a lively moment. And of course, to be able to share where that's coming from. You talked about people of asylum, people from different cultures sharing these kinds of, of interpretations. And some of the best ways that museums and galleries have been working with communities is by creating spaces for this sharing of narratives. It could be through word, it could be through food, it could be through image making, it could be through a whole range of things. But to get a sense of what other people are experiencing, have experienced, have thought, might want to share. Just creates a much more humane understanding of what a world might be. Sometimes the works that stand out the most, or those experiences that stand out the most, aren't the blockbuster, spectacular events. It's actually the more modest gestures. It's the moment that takes a visitor by surprise. I'm thinking about one example that happened a few years ago was Documenta in Kassel, one of the big Leviathan exhibitions, huge exhibition, takes place every five years in the German city of Kassel. And in 2012, there was a work 
by an artist called Ryan Gander, but you walked into the main museum called the Museo Frederizionale, and it was just a gust of wind that propelled you through the space, actually curiously towards Picasso, but a gust of wind that pulled you through the space. And we weren't quite sure whether it was because of the doors, if this was actually just the way that the museum uh, was built and how it functioned, or if it was an artwork. But this sense of being pulled into a space of culture, into a space of creativity, into a space of possibility. With your consent, curious about where you might go and having that uncertainty, but also that that pleasure that can come with being guided into that kind of space. Such a modest gesture. It was very set up. It was very built up. It wasn't something done by surprise, but it was a very modest gesture. And I think at the moment when even unpacking the dishwasher can sometimes be the biggest event of the day. Sometimes those modest gestures are as important as the excitement of going to see a huge exhibition, a blockbuster, as you say, a spectacular show. I think art can engage with the body, the mind, the imagination in so many different ways that can complement modes of thinking, other modes of creating and and thinking through and working through and devising. I was thinking about this in relation to the last 18 months and and how the sciences have rightly been heralded as the great way of getting ourselves out of this pandemic. But culture is the way and art is the way that we've been getting through the pandemic. So many people have been watching Netflix, reading, singing music, uh, playing music, making images, making art as a way of getting through uh, very difficult times and reflecting through that process. And in that sense, the sciences complement the arts and the arts complement the sciences because you can't get out of a situation without getting through it. So in order to get to the end of this set of crises, we have to be able to work through them. And so art becomes a very important means and space and time for being able to reflect, but also delve into thinking through and thinking with the situations we have at hand and the situations we find ourselves in. And that includes making mistakes. That includes making errors, which are a fundamental part of learning, is to have that space for experimentation and to learn from the mistakes that we make, that generative error. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, why art is such a crucial component of any kind of world making, along, of course, with other arts, such as music, but also other practices, such as the sciences, in order to be able to experiment and think about what can we do with what's at hand in order to be able to as I said, get through a situation, reflect on a situation in order to then find a way out of difficult situations. And you see this with art time and time again. If the socio-political situation is very difficult, often art becomes a means not only to express oneself, but to think about what might still be feasible and possible when the darkest of times are happening. It is that spark of curiosity that can often just shine a light into a very difficult space.
So there's some of the work that I've been looking at really fascinated related to how artists have responded to the kinds of cultural climates that have been set out almost top down in some cultural contexts. You can think of the Soviet Union, of Romania in the 1970s, 1980s. We might want to think about some of the circumstances now under neoliberal capitalism, whereby it doesn't feel like there are many options available to us. I think that's one of the, the complaints that a lot of people have, for instance, about spectacular exhibitions. This is, at this particular point in time, everybody is looking to be as spectacular as possible, to brand their cities as much as possible for touristic purposes in order to generate money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that that can actually stifle a lot of creativity because it sets up certain kinds of expectations about what is going to be considered, you know, quote unquote, good art or the quote unquote kind of practice. And what I've been interested in is is seeing how artists have tried to challenge that very limited way of thinking, that system of thinking, to generate other ways of exploring what, to go back to something I said earlier, that sort of sharing process might be of ideas, of relating to work, of using art to create almost like a micro community of possibility within a system of locked down thought that is a sort of a social or communitarian. And so an artist such as Ilya Kabakov, for instance, based in Moscow in the 1970s and 80s and earlier, of course, setting up these events within his studio. So he was a a children's book illustrator, uh, amongst other things, as well as a phenomenal writer. And one of the things that he would do in the 1970s and 60s and into the 80s was to have these nights in these studios where he would share, recount these narratives, completely fantastical, almost surreal narratives of people hiding in closets and then flying off into space. And it was that process of sharing these stories, these fantastical, imaginative stories with friends, almost like a children's nighttime storytelling situation or a game that then creates a different space, a different possibility within this very privileged zone of the artist studio. And with that, it's fairly clandestine. It's hidden away. It's, it's why a lot of people talk about this kind of work as not official, as unofficial art, because it's creating this kind of kernel of other possibilities within an official world that is otherwise fairly gray and mundane and uniform. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.